0: So, uh, let me pray for us first. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gospel account of Jesus' life and ministry as we reflect on it further together. uh, Help us to see the truths which the author Luke intended us to take away from it and to learn from it. So help us as we reflect on this passage to hear you speak into our hearts today in a living and active way. Amen. Well, have you ever been in a situation where you desperately needed help, but were too proud to ask for help? Well, I have. In my mid-30s, I learned to paraglide when on holiday in South Africa. Some months later, back in the UK, I was driving through the Peak District on the way to my parents. I had my paraglider in the back of the car. Uh, and only a moderate number of flying hours under my belt by that point. I came across quite a promising flying site. It was a large curved ridge, and the weather was not ideal. Uh, The the cloud was low, and the wind was possibly a little bit too strong, but I concluded, well, maybe it's marginal, and I'll just give it a go. So I laid out my paraglider, a, a third of the way up this slope of this curved ridge. And by this point, I'd already breached one of the cardinal rules of paragliding. Never fly on your own. Always have someone to help. Mistake number one. Now, my first attempt to launch uh, was a failure, and the canopy flipped over so that the front of it was now facing the ground. Now, rather than getting out of the harness and rearranging the canopy by hand, as I should have done, I thought, no, I'll be smart. I'll pull on some of the cables and get the wind to flip it back over. I'd seen other people do this, more experienced paraglider pilots before. Bad idea. Mistake number two. And before I knew it, uh, the wind had inflated half of the canopy, and it suddenly started dragging me diagonally up the slope. The force of the wind was unstoppable, and there was nothing I could grab onto it to anchor myself. I was clawing at the tufts of grass, but it was all in vain. I was being dragged along like a rag doll. By this point, I was now two thirds of the way up the slope. And I started to discern that along the top of the slope was a walking path, but also a three-stranded barbed wire fence. Now I started to liken the prospect of being dragged over this barbed wire fence to cheese being pushed through a grater. And I started to become quite anxious. To put it mildly. It was then that I noticed uh, two walkers on the path at the top of the slope uh, watching this strange spectacle unfold before them. Now at this stage what I should have done was yelled like a madman help help get hold of the canopy to these two walkers. However it seemed somewhat undignified to me at the time and not very British. I was too proud to ask for help And so I continued to be dragged relentlessly up the hillside in silence. However, uh, my pride did not prevent me from praying and never has my prayer life been more fervent. Well, I was within 10 meters of the fence when suddenly the strength of the wind momentarily dropped and I stopped moving. At seeing my chance, I leapt to my feet and I dived on the fluttering canopy and thankfully gathered it in. Having packed it all safely away in its bag, further inspection then revealed an unseen peril. There was a sheer 100-metre drop on the other side of the path and the fence, and I shudder to think what may have happened if my prayers had not been answered. I was my own worst enemy. I was too proud to ask others for help. Well, as we shall see, Our passage today considers the perils of pride, preventing us from asking for help in the spiritual realm and the devastating consequences if we allow our pride to prevail. So, uh, let's start working more closely with our text today. Uh, Chapter 14 opens with a familiar problem. Uh, It's yet another instance of Jesus enmeshed in conflict and controversy as Jesus' ministry, ministry progressed, so too did the level of opposition. Uh, the big surprise, of course, is the source of the opposition. It's from the zealous religious people within the nation. You'd think the highly religious people and Jesus would be on the same page, but nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, so what we are witnessing here is the clash of two very different religious belief systems. Uh, They're not compatible. In fact, they are at war with each other. Now, the occasion is a dinner party of a prominent high-ranking Pharisee, but Jesus is not the only person on the guest list. Also present are the host's Pharisee colleagues and also experts in the religious law. Uh, there is a sinister undertone to the event. We are told that they are all watching Jesus carefully. They're trying to catch him out. It was no coincidence that the Pharisees' invitation to a meal was on the Sabbath. And it was also not by chance that a man was present who was suffering from dropsy. Uh, Dropsy is a medical condition uh, that brought misery and eventual death. Uh, It was actually caused by organ failure, which resulted in the body becoming swollen due to the retention of body fluids. Now, the issue at stake is whether healing on the Sabbath amounts to work. That would constitute a breach of the God's Sabbath law. Uh, The Pharisees believe that it does, and so they think that if they can lure Jesus into performing a healing on the Sabbath, they've got him. They think they'll be able to discredit Jesus and his ministry. They think that then they can expose Jesus as a lawbreaker and an enemy of God's holy covenant with his people. So they have set a terrible trap for Jesus, baited with personal tragedy that they knew Jesus would find irresistible. Now, does any of this sound familiar? Uh, Do you have a sense of deja vu? When I first read this passage, I thought, hang on, I'm sure we've covered this recently. And sure enough, uh, back in chapter 13, there was an almost identical Sabbath controversy, which we saw indeed two weeks ago. Uh, Then Jesus caused a stir in the synagogue, by healing a bent over crippled woman. So why has Luke recorded an almost identical incident so soon after the previous? Uh, Is he just padding out his gospel to achieve a higher word count? Well, uh, at first I was scratching my head thinking, well, there's no point really spending much time on this. Uh, We've already covered all that needs to be said regarding the Sabbath controversies. It just warrants the briefest of comments, and then we'll focus most of our time on the second section of today's text. However, as I reflected on it, and as I prayed about it, I started to see a far deeper relevance and significance, especially when account is taken of the textual context. In other words, why is this incident recorded here? And how does it link to what has gone before in Luke's gospel? Uh, Certainly, uh, the issue in both occasions, both Sabbath controversies, is the same. Does healing on the Sabbath amount to work that therefore should be limited to the other six days of the week? Uh, In the previous incident, the objection had been vocalized, if you recall, by the synagogue leader. Here it is again in chapter 13, verse 14. He said to the people in the synagogue that day, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Now, this time, the prominent Pharisee and his entourage didn't put voice to this objection. However, Jesus clearly discerns their thoughts and knows what they are up to. And so he brings the same issue into the open by means of a question. Verse 3, Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Actually, now the hunters have become the hunted and the tables have been turned. Uh, There is little doubt that they would have known of the previous incidents in the synagogue and how jesus refuted the synagogue leader that news like that travels fast and therefore they actually know where this is heading and so they remain silent they don't want to be caught out and sure enough having then heals the man jesus challenges them with a very similar rationale to that to which he used in the synagogue verse 5 he then asked them If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Well, it's a bit like shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, These religious people didn't practice what they preached. Uh, In an emergency where life was endangered, they would perform acts of mercy or necessity on the Sabbath. So why should Jesus not perform an act of mercy in healing this man on the Sabbath? There are glaring inconsistencies in their understanding and practice of God's law. And yet, sadly, they're not prepared to admit it. They suddenly stand their ground and doggedly hold to their point of view. They say nothing in response. They just opt for sullen silence. So, uh, why has Luke included the second almost identical Sabbath controversy? Well, remember, the thematic strand running through chapters 13 and 14 is the warning against nominal belief. Uh, The Pharisees were classic examples of nominal believers. Now, if you recall, last week, uh, we defined nominal believers as those who are believers in name only. Their religious affiliation is merely an external label. There is no inner heart reality. They claim to be in the kingdom of God, but actually they believe a very different gospel. In our present day Australian society, uh, we can see uh, nominal Christian belief at two levels. uh, As David Bell pointed out in the discussion last week, there are what we can call uh, cultural Christians. In other words, inactive nominal Christians. Uh, these are those people for whom uh, the extent of their Christian affiliation is limited to just ticking the, the Christian box on the, the census form. That's about as far as it goes for them. But closer to home, there are also what we'd call nominal Christians who are church going. In other words, religiously active nominal Christians. Uh, These are the people who do everything that Christians do but for whom there is no inner born-again heart reality. They are firstly loyal in church service attendance. They do give their money to the church. They are involved in home groups and prayer meetings. However, they have not yet entered the kingdom of God through the narrow door narrow door of faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They have not yet been saved by grace. So why has Luke included this second almost identical Sabbath controversy? He is showing us how resistant nominal believers are to change and to conversion. Like the Pharisees, there is a dogged determination to hold to their position even when it's untenable, even when it is clearly inconsistent with God's word. But what would account for such resistance? What follows at the dinner party reveals the heart of the issue and the root of the problem. Uh, Jesus notices the subtle and not so subtle maneuvering as the guest jockey for the best places at the meal. And Jesus takes it as a teaching opportunity. Verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honour at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honour, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place, and then you will be honoured in the presence of all your fellow guests. So what's the point? Of course, Jesus was not concerned with teaching social etiquette to spare them the blushes of embarrassing future confrontations with dinner hosts. Jesus had a far more serious point to make. Rather, he was declaring an eternal spiritual principle of his kingdom. Uh, He then summarizes it in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who who humbles himself will be exalted. This self-promoting dinner party behavior was just one expression of the DNA of their underlying religious belief system, because it was all centered on self, Self self-promotion, self-seeking from a heart that was self-righteous and self-exalting. Exalting is not a word that we use frequently these days. Uh, the dictionary defines exalt as, and I quote, to think or speak highly of something or someone, or to raise to a higher rank or position. So you see, these Pharisees were self exalting. Through their self efforts at being religious, they believed they could raise themselves to a higher rank and position. Uh, There was a great deal of self-exalting at the dinner party that day as they upgraded themselves to the seats of honour. But they also thought they could self-exalt themselves in relation to God. They thought that they could raise themselves to the rank and position of being acceptable to God through their religious duties. No wonder that conflict and controversy constantly raged around Jesus and the Pharisees, because it was the clash of two very different religious systems. It was works versus grace. It was the collision of two diametrically opposed views of God's kingdom and the means of entry into it. As this diagram illustrates, these different belief systems produce two very different types of Believer, the house of their lives are built on very different foundations. Uh, the nominal believer is built on the foundation of self-exalting and trust in one's own works and efforts and goodness. And the whole structure rests on the foundation, therefore, of pride. But on the right, uh, the other house, the true born again Christian is built on the foundation of self-humbling, and trust in Christ and his saving work on the cross. And the foundation is totally different. In essence, the foundation is not pride, but humility. And so now it is clearer why nominal believers are so resistant to change and conversion. It is their pride that prevents them from acknowledging their need and asking for God's help. Uh, Pride sneers at walking the path of humility. But the the consequences of such proud self-confidence are far more serious than being dragged through a barbed wire fence and falling 100 metres down a cliff. Christ's kingdom principle that he expounded that day pointed forward to the ultimate outcome of these two different approaches. Uh, Jesus warned that self-exaltation ultimately ends in eternal demotion and humiliation. Tragically, self-exalting nominal believers will be humbled on the final judgment day because they have not entered through the narrow door of faith in Christ. He will utter those words of eternal loss. Away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you yet those who humble themselves now and put their trust in Christ's work on the cross to reconcile them to God will be exalted, uh, they will be raised to the rank and position of loved children of God, clothed in the dazzling spotless raiment of Christ's righteousness. So uh, a couple of words and thought, thoughts on application, how it applies to us as we close. Uh, Firstly, uh, the challenge for all of us to prayerfully and carefully uh, consider our hearts, building on what we saw last week. Uh, Religiously active nominal believers are perhaps the most difficult to reach with the gospel. Why? Because the whole structure of their belief system rests on the foundation of pride. And pride, of course, prevents us from asking for help when we need to. Pride acts as a filter that rejects grace out of hand. Uh, Last week, God's word challenged each of us to examine our hearts and consider if we have truly got personal with Jesus. Remember, Uh, we asked the question, have we personally asked him to rescue us and to rule us? Now, if you found... There was internal resistance when considering that question. Maybe it's an indication that it is a question that warrants some further reflection. Why not pray for God to reveal to you the truth of your heart's belief system? Because you see, there is no future in self-exaltation, but to be exalted by Christ is the path to eternal joy, peace, and delight. And as we saw last week, uh, nominal believers can become genuine believers, as we saw in that staggering story of William Haslam, uh, the 19th century church minister, who was converted by his own sermon. Uh, Such a turnaround requires a divine miracle. But then again, Every conversion requires a miracle of God, for we are all dead in our sins without the convicting and enlivening work of God's spirit in our hearts. And here's a second strand of application to consider today, embracing the path of humility. For those of us who are trusting Christ, there is this encouragement to continue making humility our way of life. For to different degrees, we all still struggle with pride. Uh, there is a future in humility. Uh, it seems counterintuitive, but actually, there is great wisdom and benefit in making humility the governing principle of our ministries and of our daily lives. And it's not a path that we have to pioneer ourselves, rather, we follow the path that our Saviour has taken before us. Uh, Philippians 2, of course, puts it so well. Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name, which is above all names. And so uh, we each need to ask, uh, where am I struggling with pride in my life and heart as a follower of Jesus? Uh, Where do I need to be more humble? Where can I look to the interests of others and not just to my own more? Where can I consider others better than myself? Because the truth that Jesus is bringing home to us in this passage today is that to ascend, to be exalted, we first have to descend. We have to humble ourselves. And that is what Christ has wonderfully demonstrated for us and lived out for us. true lasting exaltation can never be grasped. It has to be given it cannot be grasped by us, it has to to be given to us by God. So each day, let's pray for strength to tread the same path as our Saviour. I'm going to pray for us now, and then we'll open up to comments and questions. Heavenly Father, thank you for the indescribable gift of your Son, the one who humbled himself, not just to taking on human flesh, Laying aside his glory, but ultimately to humble himself to that ignoble and humiliating death on a cross. Thank you for that priceless gift, that indescribable gift. And we pray that each of us in our church uh, would have embraced that gift personally. And we pray that each of us in our church would live out that same principle throughout our Christian lives of humbling ourselves and living lives of humble service as the humble servant king did for us. Amen.